Uh, before I begin, first of all, um, and because we're still in the season of Easter and we can't hear these words enough, he is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If you look in your hymnals in the Easter section, you'll see that the text of three of them were written by the same man. Hymn number 93, that hallowed chosen morn of praise. Hymn number 94, come ye faithful, raise the strain. And hymn 96, the day of resurrection. All have at the bottom of their respective pages these words. St. John of Damascus, 8th century, T.R.J.M. Neal. They are translations by 19th century Church of England priest John Mason Neal of poems written in Greek by St. John of Damascus some 1,200 years ago. The Sunday's Gospel lesson is from St. John's account of the long speech Jesus makes to his disciples at the Last Supper. He is preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we'll celebrate on Pentecost three weeks from today. Jesus tells them, quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. I think the easiest way to understand what Jesus is talking about is to remember that when he went back to heaven, he left the church with no New Testament, no creeds, no prayer book or hymnal. We tend to take all of those essential elements of our life together for granted. But we have them only because the church worked them out in the earlier stages of her history under the guidance of the Holy Ghost. The first major question which confronted the new church was whether a Gentile had to become a Jew before he could become a Christian. Jesus never addressed that issue directly. The way the church determined its answer was to gather all the apostles together to discuss it until the Holy Spirit brought them to unanimous agreement. We read about their meeting in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. Gathering the bishops together became the way the church decided all major matters. Seven such meetings called ecumenical councils took place in the first eight centuries of the church's history. The church was still more or less one at that period, so it was least theoretically possible to collect all the bishops in one place. The last ecumenical council was the Second Council of Nicaea, held in 787. The writings of our hymn writer, St. John of Damascus, had a decisive influence on the way the bishops answered the great question of the day. The question was, is it legitimate to make images and representations of Christ and the saints and use them in the church? Those who said no were called iconoclasts, literally image smashers. John of Damascus defended images, and his view carried the day. The iconoclasts rested their argument on the second commandment, the one which forbids worshiping graven images. John responded, quote, in former times, God, who is without form or body, could never be depicted. But now, when God is in the flesh, conversing with men, 
I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter who became matter for my sake. The dispute over paintings and images became a debate about the meaning of the incarnation of Christ. What added spice to the debate was that it took place during the first decades of the rise of Islam, which has an attitude towards images similar to that of Judaism. John's grandfather was an official in the Byzantine government in Damascus. After the conquest of Syria in the late 7th century, John's family stayed on as highly placed advisors to the Muslim governors. As a small boy, John himself was tutored with the son of the Caliph of Damascus, the Muslim ruler. Christians and Muslims coexisted, at least back then, without any obvious difficulty. John of Damascus wrote the earliest Christian tract about Islam that I'm aware of, called On the Heresy of the Ishmaelites. He commended the religion for returning the Arabs to some sense of monotheism after centuries of outright paganism. And he seemed more interested in informing Christians about Islam than creating ill will. But John criticized the new religion for the same reason he opposed the iconoclasts. They did not believe properly that in Jesus Christ, God had come to earth in the flesh. Our culture is increasingly less literate. We no longer can broadly assume that most people know how to read and write. John of Damascus lived in a similar world, and he defended the use of pictures in Christianity for just that reason. He writes, just as words edify the ear, so also the image stimulates the eye. What the book is to the literate, the image is to the illiterate. John's victory in the iconoclastic controversy made it completely legitimate for Christian worship to appeal to the senses as well as to the intellect. Jesus not only had all the human senses, but he also redeemed them. So we can use all our senses to perceive him and adore him. Without John of Damascus, it is hard to imagine anything we could call distinctively Christian art. The fact that John's view prevailed led directly to the flowering of icon painting in the East in the high and late Middle Ages, and to the magnificent Christian art that the West produced in the medieval and Renaissance periods. The iconoclastic heresy came roaring back at the Reformation when many Protestants eliminated crucifixes, icons, and statues, and abhorred churches that were decorated in any way. Their worship became primarily an exercise for the mind, rejecting sacramental worship like our own, which tries to appeal to the body and the senses. The writings of St. John of Damascus put the teachings of the Eastern Church into an orderly system and the West followed suit several centuries later. John also standardized liturgical music in the Eastern Church, as did the West later on as well. And John wrote those wonderful hymns which we still sing. But what unites all of John's achievements is his defense of the incarnation. In Jesus, God has made himself known to us in our flesh. 
We need to hear this Christmas doctrine again in the season of Easter. For if Jesus is not flesh and blood, just as I am, the fact that he rose from the dead in his body holds out no hope for me. Let us let John himself conclude, quote, Christ is like us in everything except sin and partakes of our nature. He deified our flesh forever and sanctified us by surrendering his Godhead to our flesh. He rose by the excellence of his power, keeping the immortal flesh by which he saved us from corruption. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.